Hey folks, and tonight's episode is brought to you by YesPleaseVintage.com. If you're in the States and a fan of vintage and upcycled housewares and clothing, give YesPleaseVintage.com a check for clothing, jewelry, homeware, and some really awesome finds. So go check them out now at YesPleaseVintage.com. And currently, if you spend over $60, you get free shipping on all orders. Hello and welcome to episode 102 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me of course is my co-host, the Professor, Mr. Stephen Palmer. On tonight's episode, we have not one, but two movies as we once again put our viewing fate in the hands of you, the listener. In this case, listener Marcus, who has taken up the mantle of tonight's listener roulette. And it's obviously being chosen one of our films tonight. We're also going to be looking at Wong Kar Wise um, as tears go by as well. But before we get into that, uh, just a couple of things we have to just go over first of all. First of all, Stephen, how excited are you the fact that we're getting Lego Godzilla minifigs? I'm very excited because... That's it's a weird the... one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah fine we have godzilla funko pops i guess we could have godzilla minifigs as well well it's sort of like you build the lego city for your child to then act like godzilla to knock down and now you have your lego godzilla do we have like smaller lego for him to knock down <laughs> like or? A mini lego i mean yeah i saw you made a comment about that on facebook or some social media i saw and it rem- and i think you may have drawn the allusion to like the original Sim City games, where you could yes. get a Godzilla to come and ruin all the hard work. You've, a, a game feature I never understood. But <laughs> it was to add an additional challenge. If you felt it was getting too easy for yourself, you could throw a challenge out there. But as a kid, I would like get the city to a certain part, and then I would just bombard them with disaster after disaster. So yeah. we'd have tornado, Godzilla, earthquake, fire, nuclear explosion. It was like chaos raining down on my little sim people um and now i play city skyline and i just think hours upon hours into that game trying to finesse little roads and stuff but always trying to work around gridlock that always occurs yeah i mean those games are great but yes that wasn't the um i guess that wasn't the point that you were trying to raise it is a bit odd but i think godzilla's a bit of a, a bit of a brand whore these days isn't isn't he and seems to be tied to anything it's certainly an open market and it's only bodes all the more well that uh, it pushes sort of criteria to continue releasing the missing two eras really uh, which is why I'm hoping that it will help further encourage of course the obviously mm. downside being it's Godzilla minifigs and I'm not a huge fan of like Lego minifigs it's not they don't really sort of display well at all and trying to build anything to scale for your Godzilla minifigs going to be a bit odd, but yeah. um, I don't know. Maybe they do like a. I get this again is up on the certain Godzilla figurines that don't really work as minifigs, such as like Mothra, who's going to look more like the Mothman 
<laughs> um, than than Mothra. Um, like, how are you going to do King Ghidorah? How do you have three heads on a single peg thing? Yeah, no, I hear you. Um, it's going. It's not going to. Oh, I say things like that, don't I? Then I look at my baby metal Funko Pops and my <laughs> and other Lego things. I'm still lusting after a Seinfeld Lego. Seinfeld set Lego for a year. I've had that in my Amazon basket in and out. So I'm not to be trusted. I would not to be trusted at all. I've just recently finished my Funko Pops collection. So until they make the Funko Pops I want, I'm now sorted for for them. Yeah, well, that's what I think. And then suddenly, yeah, I don't even like Funko Pops. I think they're horrible. But I have got several. <laughs> they're yeah. dead-eyed things staring at me. I've got Squirrel Girl and I've got John Waters. Yeah. And until they make Hunter S. Thompson, Tom Wolf, or Mackie Ito, I have no reason to buy any more. I'm certain there'll be a Hunter S. Thompson one at some stage. I I'm, really hope so. I'm really surprised there is. You really surprised me that there isn't. Um, the, the, those are the Funkos I'm sort of holding out for. Mm. Um, I know the rest is all like, if I like Valerian, I would like to have some Valerian, but I don't want the whole set of Valerian. Right. At the same time, it feels weird to only have like two characters from Valerian. So the these are like the lines I draw. I don't like the Funkos that look like the other Funkos, where it's basically like, oh, they got a new hat. Um, or, or those awful ones which are just silver or gold. And yeah, you yeah. Think, what the f- what the hell is that about? Or the Venom ones they did a whole line of. It's like Venom Thanos, Venom oh, Carnage. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I mean, I get, I get, I, I do understand where that's coming from. There is like a, it's like there is. I think there's a Marvel storyline where everyone gets infected by Venom or something. You know, I get it, but it's that's not what Funko's about. Funko's about appealing. You know, we all know people who have thousands of the fuckers in boxes <laughs> behind them when they're on screen. Um, yeah, I, I, and I'm tempted quite often <laughs> by things that I don't need. Like I'd love some Cybermen Funkos, but luckily I missed the boat, and they're all too expensive, even for me. Yeah, the um, the other Funko I would like to get is the Funko Jimmy from Pulp Fiction. Oh yeah, um, which I know one person who's got it, and that's the Reverend Scott over on the Church of Tarantino. Yeah, and every time we podcast with him, he holds it in front of the camera to taunt me that he has it. <laughs> and today the bidding for one went up to the 150 range and I was like no I'm not spending 150 quid on a Funko Pop no I I, I, I I'm I, not luckily the one of the few things I'm not really into I, obviously you know me DVDs, CDs <laughs> retro computers Blu-ray, vinyl that you can't set, play vinyl I can't play I am not huge on collectibles and figurines. I, yeah. I I do have a few Funko Pops. Obviously, you know about my baby metal ones. I've got um, Teenage, Negasonic, Warhead, and Ms. Marvel. And my kids have bought me Star-Lord and some weird little ones. Okay. Um, I've got a Mantis and a Ant-Man, but they're like small uh, they're obviously a different range so i have got five or six but that's it really i think i've got a gundam figure and that's about it but i do sometimes fall down that ebay you know that ebay 
trap and then suddenly I see uh, I mean you're very lucky what with the Barbie podcast I haven't bought a load of Barbie things that have intrigued me <laughs> I'm just about to say I mean I thought that would have been your whole bag now that, uh... oh mate so I did used to own I used to have a Wonder Woman Barbie that I bought when I was in Southeast Asia somewhere and I, I loved my Wonder Woman Barbie I kept it in the box and everything and then my children when they were young sometimes a little too much yeah well I, 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 I just I thought it was just cool basically of course. And my children got hold of it when they were children and as with all the dolls that they had um, she received a haircut and Ooh. lots of lots of facial tattoos with a biro and <laughs> that was the end of Barbie <laughs> in my my world i don't want to think how much that might be worth would have been worth yeah probably best not to yeah but, but bless them, they had fun things are only worth what people are willing to pay for them at the and end of the day absolutely um but yeah i think maybe it's with the wrong generation because obviously you're a gen xer i'm a xenial we're not really sort of like into the whole collectibles as such it seems more like the millennials onwards who are like really into amassing things i mean yeah i i, I collect stuff with because of my chromosomal mix because i'm a guy right but i'm yeah. not <sighs> i mean i say I'm this not... and there's a lot of people who are sort of age you collect like transformers and he-man things it's more like collecting your childhood that i see a lot from our generation so oh uh, and that's my i mean you know about my retro computer kink um that's utterly about this overwhelming sense of nostalgia i've got yeah the um recent obsession i've got of watching classic doctor who is out of trying to remember when i was 10 again yeah and being quite shocked (laughs) i mean saying that legend are now showing the twilight zone yeah, which has been really cool. Which is like, probably before our time. It is, but it was always it was always in like the cultural zeitgeist mm. when I was growing up. But it was never re-shown for whatever reason. I have to say, I have got all five series on Blu-ray of the Twilight Zone. I, I love that so much. I don't know what's when I'm watching it now. I'm not sure it's like the HD version of stuff, but the film stock seems really weird. Yeah, it seems like overly polished. They have done. They've all been re. Um, Mastered. Remastered. And I there's things I didn't know. Like the series four, no one wanted to make it. All the episodes are twice as long and there's only about two good ones. <laughs> I had no idea because I didn't really consume TV in series or seasons like we yeah. do now. Um all kinds of programmes, you know, that I I've spoken before, you know, things like seventies detective shows. I didn't really realise that Starsky and Hutch had seasons and things like that. I just saw episodes when they were on, or Cagney and Lacey, or anything like that. It's weird. And now it's all, oh, Starsky and Hutch season one box set. And I think, no, stop it, Stephen. But yes, the, the Twilight Zone is excellent. Because um, when I was growing up, we had the Outer Limits, the new season of the Outer mm. Limits. Uh, which was phenomenal because it used to fill in seasons of the X-Files. You'd have a season of the X-Files and then you have Out Limits. Mm. And that was also when we started getting like nudity on TV. So you'd be sitting there with your parents watching it and then they'd have like, some really explicit sex scene or something. And it'd be like super uncomfortable. See us on your mum where we, some two people were like, going at it. Like the, uh, Have that episode where the woman keeps absorbing people she has sex with. 
I don't remember that one, but I no. can imagine. I can imagine. This was have... at the dawn of HBO when they were like throwing the oh, rule book out the window and, and like, like red, red Shoe Diaries era, that kind Probably. of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It won't be the most embarrassing. And I um, <sighs> this is not a variation cinema podcast right now, but we'll get there eventually. Promise you. But many years ago, I back when VHSs were a thing. I I must I can't remember how old I was, but I couldn't have been much more than twenty. And I asked my parents to buy me a Frank Skinner live video for as my, one of my Christmas presents because I knew Frank Skinner from fantasy football and all that kind of stuff, which is yeah. now obviously having a a more serious look at it because of what David Bedil did on the show. But never mind. So, but I thought I thought Frank Skinner was really funny. I had no bloody idea that he'd be telling us stories about <laughs> sticking his head up people's asses and stuff like that i'm watching that with my mother and stepfather on christmas day well i felt very uncomfortable <laughs> there's a number of bowie albums i'm sure you also felt uncomfortable listening to around them yeah absolutely yeah lots of aladdin sale has got like a really dodgy opening track on it aladdin sale yeah there's a lot of a lot of things now, TV and music, that, oh, <laughs> I missed that. Anyway, let's move on. Um, back to the point I was going to make, though. Uh, Scott over on Church of Tarantino, uh, we had the great pleasure of being part of the first two episodes of season two. Um, over on uh, Church of Tarantino, he's doing an in-depth look at the filmography of Quentin Tarantino. Season 1 was obviously looking at the filmography and examining key scenes, and now Season 2 is moving on to the inspiration, which is why he's wrote myself and Stephen into doing a couple of episodes for him. The first episode on Reservoir Dogs gave me a chance to talk about both Stanley Kubrick's The Killers, as well as Ringo Lamb's City on Fire, and this really fun episode to record. And then he sort of doubled down by having Stephen on for the next episode with myself, and we got to talk about A Better Tomorrow 2, as well as... And Sonny Chiba's The Street Fighter as well. So it was two really fantastic episodes to record. And if you have got an interest in Tarantino or just want to hear us talk about Asian cinema somewhere else, you can obviously go and listen to those as those will be out now. So uh, go and check those out. But uh, definitely a really fun show to record and a, a good show to listen to. And hopefully we're going to be getting Scott on for a future episode. Absolutely. I will also, just one thing... You may be bringing it out, you may not. But I was quite excited to see a new thing on Netflix this week. I haven't watched it yet, but I am going to. Um, the Junji Ito Maniac. Yes, that's my weekend uh, yeah. viewing. So I think I guess we'll both talk about that next week. <laughs> but I had no idea that was coming along. I've had a little breeze through. I mean, it doesn't look very like Junji Ito's art to me. But I'm very excited that his stories are... Some of his stories are being um, given that kind of wide exposure on Netflix. Definitely so. I mean, we put Usamaki up for the vote, uh, for the Halloween vote, and just looking at what this this year's challenge is going to be, it's actually going to be 30 Days of Asian Horror this year is going to be my challenge. So we're going to do a full month of Asian horror and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll cross off some uh, cross off Uzumaki and a couple of those others that we had on the list as part of that countdown. So 
Yeah, but maybe in one of the Tomy movies, something like that. Um, I'm open to suggestions, so you oh, know, I'll let pump, us know. I'll pump some interesting ones in your direction because you're the man. You're the man who goes through the full horror of it. I just pick and choose. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I was just really no idea, and it just sort of popped up. So, like you, that's going to be. I don't know if I'll watch them all, but little twenty-minute Junji Ito-inspired animations. I'm all over it. Definitely. I'm excited to uh, to check it out. I know it's certainly got team member Steph excited because it was all over our Facebook today. But uh, yeah, definitely let us know your horror recommendations either on Facebook or Twitter and Instagram. Come say hi to us there. And, you know, let us know what uh, what should be included in the 30 Days of Asian Horror, which will be making up our month-long special this year. You know, slow, slowly building up the Infinity Glove here, Stephen. Yeah. We've got our director gem, we've got our actor gem, and now we're going to have our genre gem. It's going to be fantastic. Probably uh, won't feel that way by the uh, end of the month, but you know, well, right now we'll tie, I mean, obviously you can tie it into October and get, get a twofer, right? <laughs> this is the thing. I'm not I'm not sure where my October plans lie, but uh, maybe, as you said, maybe that will be my, my twofer then. Mm-hmm. And cheat, but it's a cheating I can approve of. Okay, now it's time to uh, wheel out the wheel of doom that is listener roulette, and time to see what Marcus has picked for us tonight. So for tonight's listener roulette, uh, Marcus has chosen Gohato, also known as Taboo, uh, released in 1999, the greatest movie year ever. This is a beat Takashi Katano movie. And Stephen, is this a film that you'd heard of before? No, it wasn't. And then I found out when watching it, it was directed by Nagisa Oshima who I have heard of and you will have heard of because he directed Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which I guess is sort of one of those crossover films that we need to consider in a spin-off podcast one day, like Irma Vep and some others. And But he also directed I Know Corrida, or In the Realm of the Senses. Yes, the one where a woman lays an egg and chops off a penis. And all sorts of. Why have we not thing. covered that? It fits so well within our. I, our I remit, just think I, I, I do. I, I am surprised we haven't covered it. And every time we talk about some of those other films, I'm thinking, well, we've got the biggie, is is somewhere. So yeah. So it's. So I, I hadn't heard of it at all. Um. Also, you know, it, this is also another first because it's the first sort of. I want to say queer film we've watched, queer cinema, film we've watched. Although it it doesn't fit quite as comfortably um, in what I would normally call standard queer cinema but definitely it's about I'm it's trying about... to think of Beautiful Bakery was... Oh yes yes Antique Bakery absolutely Antique Bakery sorry. Mm. Yes no you're right that that has certainly that is certainly queer friendly there's a certainly um, a very strong gay, gay character. And then we had Tears of the Black Tiger 
uh, or that, the good, the bad, and the fabulous, as we like to call it. Yeah, I think that's more camp. I mean, this this sits absolutely in a in a very obvious, you know, a, there's there's an all male setting, and a beautiful man comes in. It's like it's like lots of other films set in public boys schools or cath or, or, or monasteries and things like that it, it's certainly sitting in that world so i hadn't heard of it so thank you marcus for um i assume you hadn't watched it either before no i'd never seen this one and which is surprising as well as seeing this it's a beat to catch a Gitano film i've seen quite mm. a few of his um but at the same time this is our first time we uh, played listener roulette we had a scene at the sea which he directed um, as well, which was another very surprising film and one that um, we certainly yeah. enjoyed. But uh, with Gohato, if you're not familiar with the film, it follows the young and handsome Kano Sozobura, who is admitted into the Shin Sugami, an elite samurai group that seeks to defend the Tokugawa shogunate against reformist forces. Uh, Kano is a skilled swordsman, but his physical beauty leads the members of the strictly male group to compete for his affections, generating tensions that threaten to become lethal. In Gohato, Nagashi Ishima explores the ambiguous forms of masculinity that Samurai Code conceded, where a terrific cast including Ryu Matsude, uh, obviously Takashi Katano, and Tanobu An as I know, um, subtly capturing the dangers of repressed homoerotic desire. So thank you, Rare Film, for that breakdown there. Um, this is a film, when I was watching it, it falls somewhere between Black Narcissist and Brokeback Mountain with added samurai action. Um, certainly this is a very unique movie as we obviously have these very sort of stoic samurai settings here as we have uh, the leaders of this um, these are the samurai group who are bound to these like laws of uh, honor and duty that they're, they're to follow. And at the same time, you have this young swordsman who is basically busy sort of like distracting him because everyone he comes in contact with seems to want to have their end away with him, <laughs> uh, which causes massive disruption with it, hence drawing the comparisons to Black Narcissus with the nunnery being thrown into chaos with the introduction of a man into their midst yeah it has got black narcissus vibes absolutely yes um i think the one i see people most link it to is uh, is it billy bud um uh, again i can't remember who it, it basically it's the sort of film that morrissey would enjoy where <laughs> you know these death in venice is another one you know there's yeah. there's a beautiful young boy that is introduced into this this very almost hyper-masculine world of samurai, a world of violence and blood, but also a violence of rules and honour and code. And, and um, you know, you're, you're quite rightly calling it by the Japanese name, Gohatu, which can translate as taboo, which is what the English title seems to be. But it also has meanings of um, rule-breaking which I think is a much better use of the word here. You know, there's a lot of talk early on in this movie about, 
there's like a narrating thing, isn't there, that goes on where some other character narrates quite a lot of interscene breaks and talks about these are the rules that you have to follow. Otherwise, you have to disembowel yourself. So that, that, that way of the Bushido that we see in other movies. So it's it's kind of interesting. And then and, and then we would think that oh, homosexuality must be a bad thing right back in this 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 it time is the assumption, period in isn't Japan. It? Yeah. And and it's not. All you have is is Takashi um, Kitano's character smirking, saying, "Well, I wondered if he lent that way," and and but there's no <laughs> there's no there's no problem with people being homosexual at all in this movie. That, that no one is being punished or hurt or even seems to be that ashamed of homosexual leaning. No, they're very it, open about um, it, the fact he's having relations with it and that there's many characters who remark is all like, I thought you were involved with, you know, this character. And they're like, no, I'm not at all. And he's basically, he's not like sleeping his way to the top of this um this samurai group he's just been involved with many people who happen to be key fingers figures within the group which ends up causing some mass disruption at the same time kano is also a very highly skilled swordsman as we see during the opening when they're recruiting new members and they have them engaging in various like forms of like kendo uh, matches and other forms of stick fighting to sort of like judge their fighting ability and we're barely 20 minutes into it where Keno is uh, basically tasked with um, handling the decapitation of a uh, one of his fellow samurai who's been taking money that was supposed to be going to the clan but he's sort of been pocketed it himself under false pretenses and uh, the honourable death of him is to, for Kano to um, behead him and he's sort of like well that's hell of a hazing that you're going to be going through <laughs> And then that generates this jealousy with this other guy that's joined at the same time. Yes, who, who also is a skilled swordsman. And... He, yeah, and, and, and also is madly in love with, um, uh, what's his name? Kano. Kano, that's right, yeah. yeah. Um, everyone's in love with Kano. But he yeah. is, he's just basically this pretty boy swordsman. Who, if he wasn't a samurai, would probably be heading up a K-pop group somewhere. You know, that's exactly <laughs> where I was going with this. I think you could do a modern day version of this, but it would just be inside a K-pop group. Yeah, it's impossibly a gorgeous, uh, speaking as a cis heterosexual man, you know, an impossibly gorgeous boyish creature that deliberately wears a different color outfit to everybody else i think you said that he was almost like um he wasn't sleeping his way to the top i disagree i i think he absolutely no? is and that he he's he's that he says things and he's playing people against each other and he knows exactly what he's doing but he does give the appearance of this beautiful cipher that that it just happens to be really good at fighting and the other thing is, of course, they don't even do a lot of fighting, because there's this other stream to the story. It's, it's sort of a very sort of a tertiary theme, but basically, this is the end of the samurai, right? The the master goes away, doesn't he, and comes back and says, "Well, I went to this battle, but all all the westerners had cannons and guns, and it's terrible, <laughs> and you couldn't do fighting anymore." And these guys, all the, there's, a, there's they spend more time killing each other in this movie than they do being part of any shogun's um task force do that there's, there's a there's a few bits and bobs but yes it's it's very much like this there's this 
this very code-driven military thing. This is the end of days for it. And he's not saying that homosexuality killed them off. That's absolutely not what he's saying. That's almost like a different thing altogether. And it could have been a woman, couldn't it? It could have been anything. Well, this is the thing. They tried to get him back on the right track by taking him to the local prostitute, who, of course, being this film, um, is like this most glamorous geisha yeah. that they can find because he's treated like he's royal royalty, really, because of his status within the clan. So they have this um, gorgeous geisha girl come out, and she's got, like, two small child courtesans with her. It's like a full production, really, for someone who's uh, basically taken to, essentially, to see, like, the local brothel. Mm. But obviously, being the time and stuff, it's the geisha you're going to go and see. And when he's there afterwards and he's sort of like, well, it, it didn't go well. <laughs> he sort of like didn't have any real interest and sort of walked away. So that plan kind of falls apart and you're thinking, God, we spent all this money like hiring this gorgeous girl to try and get him back on the right track so he's not seducing people. And you're right, there's all this talk of like all these battles that are happening outside of the clan, but all the sort of action we see is also like very much like people training with each other and we have like the one or two sort of fight scenes towards the end, but there's no big battles as such. And all the bosses in this are like these most like big, like iconic actors, like, uh, mm. like uh, his rival who goes off, um, who's assigned one of the bosses, like the big bold guy who would be like a Yakuza boss mm. in um, any other movie. And you have these really sort of iconic figures that may get like mentioned once or twice, but there's, they're so well cast and have such a presence on screen that they always sort of like stick with you. So I really loved like how this film was shot, how it's uh, played out. The actual, <laughs> the various romances of Kano though did get a little grating, but at the same time when it got big sort of like grating, it felt like, oh, here's some more feisty bits for you. So it's kind of broke it up um, into in the slower parts or we'd have like Katano on screen just doing you know, the Katano thing that he does. So I was never bored with this movie, even though there were times when I didn't feel that it sort of grabbed me fully. So I would, for that extent, I would still heavily recommend that you check this film out. If you can hunt down a copy, there are obviously places like Rare Films that you can obviously check it out, because I think trying to get a copy on, like, DVD or Blu-ray is going to be a little difficult, because the distribution or preservation of this film is a bit uh, rubbish. But um, rare yeah, films still have I a copy. agree. I mean, luckily, Marcus pointed us at is it Railway? No, Rare, rare Films. Rare Films. That's it. And there's, I, I did find another copy, but that was absolutely serviceable. Yeah, it's um, I just just add to what you say. I mean, as as a movie, maybe it's not my cup of tea. I thought bizarrely, it was a bit talky, even for my liking, and I felt there was a lot of repetition we're just saying the same stuff and i really did struggle to tell some of the people apart it was lucky that kano had a white outfit because there were at least two other characters which i just was very confused who i was what the relationship between everybody was obviously they're all boning kano but apart from that (laughs) yeah those aren't sexy scenes though no 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 um, it, which it's is not an, it's not an erotic movie at all. I have to say, I think Gregoraki once again has ruined new queer <laughs> cinema for for all of us because you look at Brokeback Mountain and nobody seems to be having too much fun for the most part there. And the same with this one; it seemed like very one sided. 
Yes. And then you obviously look at uh, Greg Raku movies and people are just shacking up with anything that moves. Um, yeah. Everyone's having a gay old time for literally in a Greg <laughs> Raku movie. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's all a bit, there's obviously a side of it we never get to see, like the, the, there's some, there's some, anyway, let's not talk about, that's not the line I wanted to go down. What I was going okay. to say was, it, what, it is really nicely filmed. It's not like a Bertolucci last emperor or, or, <laughs> or, or, or like, um, what did we watch the other week? Um, Curse of the Golden curse the oh. golden flower anything like that it's not this glorious colorful thing it's 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 quite muted it's grays and browns but all the shots are really nicely put together everyone looks amazing it just it's re- it's a really well made film and um the thing which i've been struggling to get at is that the music is done by ruchi sakamoto the famous yellow orchestra ruchi sakamoto who also did the music and acted in um, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which is the obviously the same director as I said before. Um, I thought the music in this was excellent. It's like this sort of this mix of both sort of electronic music, but also very traditional Japanese sounds and instruments. Um, you might not have noticed it, but I, I noticed it big time because um, big fan so yeah i just think it's a really lovely package it's not a movie i would have come across before gotta be honest with you i've never seen in the realm of the senses because i don't but but now i'm more used to cop chopping so maybe it'll be all right mate so it's a direct apart from um, merry christmas to lawrence i don't really know this guy's this this director's um pieces um oshima's sort of cinematic cv but it's yeah i i, I get why marcus introduce us to it it's um it's just a really solid movie <laughs> and and i'm glad you liked it as well i think you like i think we're both sort of seven out of ten sort of thing isn't it i us? give it yeah i gave it four out of five on uh La box i you gave it 3.5 so mm. liked it a little bit less than myself no i think it, i think it well 3.5 is all like normally my good movie go to scale i think he just sort of raised above it and i think it is it just the fighting sequences the sword play sequence in this movie are just so well shot and they're shot with such a w- wonderful wide lens mm. when you're seeing how and these guys aren't just like doing like strategic like one or two strikes they're going hell for lever at each other and um, one but the one hit does do the killing and that's um that's yes. important, I think, when you're watching a Samuel movie. There was a computer game once that that did that concept. Oh, is it Bushido Wear I, the Blade? I want to say it's Bushido, like on the PS1 or something. Yeah, 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 because um, I remember that uh, you could choose different swords. Mm. Or you could have like a sledgehammer, which also did the trick of one hit, one kill. Mm. But, but it was it, like really slow. It was very much that. And then there's the, in this film, there's also there's that sort of final sequence, which is sort of down by the river and it's but it and there's a wonderful sort of um willow tree and that 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 um katana's character it chops down but it's just that last 10 minutes is just beautiful even though it's people just talking a quite a quick but well produced sword fight and and katano sort of I don't know what he's going through. He has this strange thing that Katano's character speaks out loud, but we also hear his in his inner voice, don't we? Which we don't hear from anybody else. And then he chops down the tree. But that bit's just beautiful. So, yeah, there's 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 a lot to enjoy here. And 
yeah thank you marcus definitely so uh, thank you marcus for uh for your selection. Uh, if you would like to obviously subject pick a movie for us for a listening roulette, you can do it if you go to our Ko-Fi account. Uh, it's there in the episode description under support the show, or if you go to our website, asiancinemafilmclub.wordpress.com and click the support the show button there, you are taken to our Ko-Fi page. And there, if you buy us free coffees, you too can pick the cinematic film that you would like to subject us to. And also, it doesn't have to star Beat Katano, right? No, it doesn't have we to appreciate be the fact everyone <laughs> sort of tapped into our love of Beat Katano. Uh, but no, it can be anything that you want. It can be something good, something bad, something weird, something arty. It's uh, completely up to yourself. You buy the coffees, we'll watch the movies, and we will include it on our next uh, episode. I think we're now two for two. We've had two great picks mm. through uh, listening roulette. What will number three bring? Exciting. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, it's time to fire up the projector for tonight's feature presentation. As tears go by. Tonight's feature presentation is As Tears Go By from 1988, directed by Wong Kar Wai, and tonight's film obviously picked by yourself, Stephen. Uh, the film itself follows uh, two parallel stories of Wa, who's caught in the midst of a love affair with his beloved cousin Nigo, uh, here played by the one and only um, Maggie Chunk. Um, at the same time, he's also in a got a brotherly relationship with his tried brother Fly who constantly gets into trouble and requires uh, for him to be constantly bailed out um, this is a debut film of Wong Kar Wai um, a director whose filmography I'm slowly working through thanks to this show as uh, this is our third Wong Kar Wai movie that we've uh, covered obviously way back in the early days we did uh, Chunking Express which is my cinema shame we've since then done Fallen Angels and this now being our third film um with uh, As Tears Go By, uh, another film that I'd never seen before. And Stephen, what's your sort of history with As Tears Go By? Is this a favourite of yours, or where do you sort Not of Not at all. It? It's first time watch for me. All um, right. Like you, I mean, I, I've seen... I'm just having a think. I have seen... I mean, he's not a director with a huge cinematic CV. Hasn't no, made that 23. Many yeah. Um, and... I've seen most of it. I've seen Chunkung Express, obviously, Ashes of Time, Fallen Angels, Happy Together in the Mood for Love, which we, uh, 2046 and The Grandmaster. 
I think just this this was the I think oh days of being wild yeah um sorry just having a look um yeah so I hadn't seen this and I knew it was his first film I also knew so I thought it'd be a nice nice place to go because I think we've seen a couple of his superior works as far as I'm concerned Chunking Express is like one of my favorite films of all time Fallen Angels it's sort of sort of sequel um yeah sort, sort of but it's a bit more but as often with one car Wai films that's a problem because he he is a bit of a george lucas and he does go back and change stuff when they get re-released so i do worry we've even seen the same version of the film um but what's really interesting about one car Wai is he's not really that popular in hong kong <laughs> it's like he's his, his films rarely make any money which is why he ends up sort of making lots of these Lunar New Year comedies. Well, other people make them, but they, the, sort of the cast from his film will go off and make a Lunar New Year comedy to make some money. Um, other than The Grandmaster, this was his only successful local film. Obviously, you know, big, massive hit on the festival circuit, massive hit in the art house world. You know, films like Chunking Express and In the Move for Love are, you know, get highly on all the... Uh, all the top hundred films of all time type lists and all that kind of thing. So I just thought it'd be really nice to go back and have a look. Obviously, we're both huge fans of Maggie Chung, so that was a, that was a winner. Um, I come and go on Andy Lau, to be honest with you. Actually, that sounded terrible. That's not what I meant to say at all. He's made but, enough movies for you to be able to come and go on his. Uh, yeah, career, absolutely. Um, so uh, yeah, first time watch, and I've got to be honest with you. This wasn't what I was expecting. <laughs> um, maybe we'll sort of come back to that at the end. But um, yeah, this 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 is really interesting film for different reasons than one might expect, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But the film itself is inspired by Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets and certainly putting the two films side by side, you can see a lot of comparisons between the two directors' debut films. At the same time, also, when we look at Wong Kar Wai's style, he's one of those few directors who's established his style very early on. You look at other directors, um, such as likes of... Wes Anderson, for example, Bottle Rocket is nothing like the rest of his filmography, whereas other directors such as like Paul W.S. Anderson establishes his film style very early on, and certainly Wonka Wide does the same with this film. Now, for myself, I watched the... Um, I watched uh, the original version of this. I didn't watch the Criterion cut. So if you rent this off Amazon Prime, you get the original cut. You don't get the Criterion cut so it had that wonderful lovely fuzziness that so much uh hong kong cinema from this era i remember sort of watching and it's got that wonderful like blocky titles and just this wonderful sort of fuzziness to the film as well which gives it a lovely sort of warmth to it um certainly when you get into like some of the city sequences and you've got like the neon glow of the streets of hong kong and uh we get this sort of like real sort of grime and uh and sweatiness that uh, that uh, Wa sort of hangs around as his uh, as a triad enforcer, really, because his main role is uh, in debt collection. At the same time, his best friend Fly is also sort of like uh, sent along to, on jobs as a system. But at the same time, he's not successful. He's not respected, and generally makes a pain in the ass of himself whenever he gets involved with things. Generally antagonizing the other sort of crime families in the area. Um, what did you? Because I mean, we can obviously look at this film, even though 
the other films we looked at have been like two separate stories. You look at it as tears go by, and it can also be seen as two separate stories. It's just they happen to be the same film. We obviously have the mob story here, and we obviously have the romantic story that he has with his cousin, um, which for myself yeah. was the less interesting part of the film. Let, let's just pull back. She's not. I think she's like a second cousin or something. It, so this is like, um, <laughs> like your auntie Flo, who's not actually your auntie. No, I think so. The the film starts and some relative of his, like, who calls her. I think it is a real auntie. That's why I wasn't sure. I just yeah, sure it was but like she a does senior. describe that she, that 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 um, Gore is the is the daughter of someone's cousin. I think it's a little bit further away. I mean, cousins. Obviously, it's legally fine, but it does feel a bit kissing cousin. You know, it does feel a bit. Oh, it's a bit weird, but I think it's just not explained very well in the subtitles. I'd also say I do not understand why all the subtitles of every. I saw the Criterion version, right? That's just that happened to be the version I had access to. Um, so there may be some differences, but they call that call Jackie Chung's character Fly, but his name's Wing. They're like translating it unnecessarily. <laughs> it's just—it's quite a common. There are many wings in Chinese movies and Hong Kong movies. Why is this one being translated to fly? It's very weird. But yes, um, yeah, I think I think you're right. I think there is these sort of his you know, Andy Lau's character sort of existing in almost two worlds here. This sort of grimy enforcer, member of the triad, sort of. Tri- enforcer for the triads and then there's sort of this love story with his cousin which i agree is less interesting um but i was also struck by the fact did this feel an awful lot difference to a moment of romance which we watched not that long ago it just feels <laughs> it's certainly got a style that feels very reminiscent no, of it and i think when i was watching it my mind for some reason was going to more romance so i'm now glad that you pointed out because it explains why uh, obviously andy Lau's in them both but yeah to me what this felt like was it's it's one of those films from late 80s early 90s hong kong that mixes crime drama with romance and there's a bunch of them and they were really popular. And then you've got this director who we know is going to go on and do really much more sort of esoteric stuff. This sounded, this felt just like really, I want to say really obvious and that's, that's being mean to it. That's not what I mean at all, but I hope, hope you understand what I mean. You say like it's inspired by mean streets, you know, this, this is a similar variations of this story. We will see a million times in Hong Kong cinema during this, this time. It's got a great cast, you know, it's got Andy Lau, early Andy Lau, really great. It's got Maggie Chung. I would suggest just before she became a stupendous actress, this is still the, Peter Badger, Maggie Chung. Yeah, maybe that's, again, I, I don't want to diss her. I don't think she's particularly well served in this film, other than she just looks lovely. And I think we're both better than that, just to judge her on just being lovely, because we both think she's a fantastic actress. Well, I mean, prior to this, I mean, she'd obviously been doing the films with Jackie Chan, so like Project A Part 2, yeah. uh, Police Story, Happy Goes Free, Seventh Curse, um, Behind the Yellow Line. So she'd had a few years in the business uh, up to this point because her first film is back in 1984 with Prince Charming behind the yellow line so yeah brothers movies there and obviously with this one this is 88 
So in the same year that uh, she does this, she also does Police Story 2 um, and a film called Call Girl 88. Yeah, I think I think what I'd call this, this is her when she's a film star, a, a local film star, right? So, you know, she's, 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 she's done things like um, Dragon Gate Inn. Is that the one she's in? Yeah, she's I mean, in she one of the Dragon Inn movies. that in the 90s. It's really the 90s when she sort of comes into her own as sort of like a as an actress here she's more just sort of like the pretty co-star um, yeah because but certainly the star. films she's doing are like mainly in sort of like she does a lot of films in like martial arts movies so things like mm. from the dragon from russia um she does days of being wild in 1990 1990 yeah, so which is one car y as well yeah um yeah no she she, she I, I would say she's a star but that's what she's a hong kong star at this rate she's not like this in you know she's not somebody who's going to go and win a can can's actress award for for clean which she did right or um work with her husband you know on irma vep or astound us all by barely saying anything in in the mood for love you know the, i don't know there's something there but we also have jackie chung which is, i think when i offered up the movie a couple of weeks ago was somebody i was interested in us seeing because jackie chung is one of those four heavenly kings of hong kong pop music and which means that he is one of the four kings of Hong Kong acting as well. So we have um, himself, Andy Lau, obviously, who's in this movie as well. Um, Aaron Kwok, who I don't think we've done anything with yet. And Leon Lai, who you'll remember as the assassin from um, Fallen Angels. So these guys are just monster superstars in 90s Hong Kong. But for music, for acting, for TV adverts, for just their photos and, and, and their, their names are everywhere. So it's kind of cool to see another one. And to be fair, I think Jackie Chung is probably the one that's actually sold more records than any of the others. He's a huge star. So I think this is one of his first film roles. It might even be his first. Um, and I thought his character was really interesting. Um, and and it was quite nicely contrasted with Andy Lau's, you know, Mary Sue of a gangster. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the, yeah. I think basically, if you were to draw this into like the Scorsese world, basically Andy Lau is Robert De Niro's character, and Jackie Chung is Joe Pesci's. Yeah. So Jackie Chung's basically the loose cannon. Everything he does tends to like end badly or cause problems. And as I said, with with Vandalo's character of War, he's sort of like the one who has to like basically go and solve things. But because this as I said is very based on mean streets, they're very low level sort of crooks. They're not. There's no cr- glamour here. They're not making hand over fist. They're living like rundown apartments. They have problematic lives, and all the way of dealing with things is mainly by punching people or getting massive brawls, which is really surprising when you think of like a Wonka Y movie and have such sort of like kinetic action scenes that we see in this. Um, and suddenly we have some really great sort of like uh, like the rival crime boss that we uh, see and he's there like eating raw eggs and he's trying to apparently get a cat drunk. He's yep. just like this real sort of scumbag guy. And it's like, this doesn't feel like a Wong Kar Wai movie for some reason. This feels like more like a Ringo Lamb sort of joint than um, than something we'd expect for Wong Kar Wai. And it, 
credit to him, he really does make some really fun sort of kinetic action scenes that we see here. It's just a shame that we constantly have to go back to the cousin storyline. This is with like getting invested in like what Fly's screwing up now, who he's upset in. Um, it's oh, we're gonna go back to to see what Nego's doing. She's having another appointment in the city and stuff. And... Yeah, so you know, just, I guess we'll just sort of put some context on it. So, so this is his. Let's call her his cousin for the sake of it. She's been sent to stay with him in Kowloon because she comes from Lantau Island. Now, I don't know if you know your Hong Kong geography, but Basically, Hong Kong is main. It's Hong Kong Island. Then there's Kowloon over on the mainland, and the the new territories even deeper into the mainland. And then on sort of on the Hong Kong side, there's some other islands. So Lantau Island is quite a big island, but it's quite countrified, right? I've been to Lantau Island, and there ain't much there. So the fact that her family run a restaurant, don't they, on that on Lantau Island? However, it's only about. It's not that far away. It's a ferry ride away. They wake out that she's got to move into Kowloon to see the doctor. It wouldn't be hard for her just to catch the ferry every day and see him. It's a very weird plot point. That's why she's having to stay with him. And she's got what appears to be a bit of a bit of an annoying cough. But they're making out that she's having total lung failure or something, which just doesn't just goes away. Because she starts potentially going out with her doctor as well. So there's a whole, there's a whole melodrama thing going on over there, which just isn't very interesting. And then the, the two things about this movie, which I think are one car ish right? The first one is even this with his first feature film, he's doing that whole, not just the slow-mo, but the, um, you know, the way that, he takes frames out of shots. So he get that kind of flicker vision thing. We remember, remember it mainly in, um, you know, when they're going around chunking mansions early on in, um, in chunking express. Yeah. 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 Well, he's practice- an annoying effect, isn't and it? And he practices it here. That, that is, that is one of his cinematic go-tos, right? So that is a one car Y thing. And it's really interesting to see that he's trying to do it in what to me is a fairly, wrote genre film of which like i say we could find another 10 from this year alone probably um but then there's that there's that amazing shot where is it who's running out of the of the pool hall yeah so that there's been some fracas and i think it's is it wing or is it war a running out of the pool hall but it seems it seems to be the world's biggest pool hall it feels like they're running past a hundred pool tables and then eventually they crash out into the street. I think it's both of them actually, isn't it? But it's an amazing shot because if you go back and look at it, you might, I don't know if you noticed or not, but that would be impossible. It can't possibly be that big. So how has he filmed that? And it's, it's otherworldly and amazing. So you get this sort of, this is, this is proto one car. Why we can see these things he's doing. Occasionally he does these amazing shots and he's got really good actors around to do it and then a fucking canto pop version of a pop classic like so in chunking express it's um the mamas and the papas california dreaming isn't it and and that you'll either love or you'll get fucked off with that record very quickly even if it is fei wong singing it in this one it's some version of berlin's take my breath away from top gun <laughs> oh, that's the only memorable bit of the soundtrack uh, oh my god I remember right 
Oh my god, it just keeps on going. It's like a 12-inch extended mix. Because they, they tie into this uh, this reunion that he has with uh, Nago on the on the ferry. And yeah. She's like writing this note about how she bought him all these glasses because he's such a bum in his apartment that he has no, no glasses because he's either broken or he just doesn't have glasses. So she bought him all these glasses and she hid a glass. And he's like, oh, I found it. And he's brought this glass to show he's found it. And he finds out that she's seeing it, her doctor. And uh, she, he has like this whole like Tom, Tom Cruise in the 80s, like Top Gun, like moody moment where he's on the boat and he throws the glass out. And, and then suddenly like we cut to her and she's running to the bus and she catches it. So he somehow manages to get a bus quick around to where the ferry docks and the ferry going over. And oh, God. But the song keeps going on and on and it repeats. It does, itself. doesn't it? And 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 again, within that, there's a really clever thing that they don't immediately jump into each other's arms. There is this kind of initial rejection of and then, then it does it. But it just keeps on going and what I it was a bit fucking annoying in the context of this film. But then you could see, ah, but he's gonna take this further in Chunking Express, yeah, where we're in this one Maggie Chung is leaving, you know, Nagore is, is, is leaving something in his apartment for him, which is kind of very similar to the Fei Wong, Tony Lung storyline where she basically tidies up his apartment while he's not there, you know. And the use of a, of a very Western music song in a canter pop style becomes this sort of background theme for it. So it's really interesting to see where it's going to go in a few years' time. But it's just, to me, this is, you know, like you say, this is a, this would be an interesting Ringo Lamb film with some weird stuff going on. It's, it's um, well, this is this is the the thing to seeing like the. The fortunes and failures of these two crooks itself is a more interesting movie than the romance angle that's mm. put in here. Especially with Fly being such a script that he is, he gets um at one point he gets involved in a pool game and manages to get hustled for an extraordinary amount of money per bowl. Um so his way of dealing with the situation is to get his um this third crook they hang around with called Sight. Uh, played by Ronald Wong, and he gets his fingers. He like uses it as a snooker cue to knock the balls in, which unsurprisingly pisses off these other <laughs> bunch of gangsters. Um, the fact that Fly constantly manages to screw things up, his godfather demotes him to selling fish balls, which again he still manages to mess up. Yeah, the thing um, thing is, so this is why this is why Fly is really interesting because. Andy Lau's character is his boss, is his big brother, but he's just really good at what he does. Whatever, whatever low-level crime thing it, that they do, basically they just extort. They just they're just collecting money, aren't they? From, yeah, that's uh, his uh, his thing. He's supposed to be collecting money, but he's basically they spend a lot of time roughhousing with other criminal low-level folks yeah, in the area, don't they? That, that's right. It's just a bit of posturing going on, but. Wing Fly, call him Fly because that's what the subtitles say. Fly is just shit at it, but he has got nothing else. We think, why do you keep on going? He's given all these outs, and he, he basically says, 
because I'm, I'm I'm never going to be like you. This is my this is my one shot. And when he gets that one chance, he gets that job to kill the guy and gets you know. But he's oh, he manages to fuck it up still, and which does lead us to a really sudden ending, which. Leaves the whole romantic thing to the... Just gives up on the romantic stuff, doesn't it? <laughs> I think the audience has long since given up yeah. on the romantic yeah. thing, so... And, and and there's a really tragic ending in this film, but it sort of comes at you at a million miles an hour. You know, it, it has this sort of pseudo-ending where it looks like things are, are looking good between the two, and then five minutes later, well, it's tragedy strikes. <laughs> the end! <laughs> but again, this this is... Um, this is just part of the course for Hong Kong cinema, that kind of pacing of a movie. They certainly don't drag out the end like they drag out the kissing scene. <laughs> True. Um, it's, also, it's kind of amusing, really, that when you look at the character Wa, he's initially introduced as like this kind of like a screw up. He's, he has this very sort of like... Um, What's the word? Uh, dysfunctional relationship with his girlfriend Mabel, who oh god dumps him because he's uh, distant and unresponsive, and then she her sort of doubles down on her own antagonistic behaviour by telling the fact that she that she was pregnant, but she had an abortion, and unsurprisingly, he reacts badly to that, and then suddenly, as the fun goes on, it kind of forgets all these flaws of him. The fact that he's like living in this crumb bum apartment and the fact that he's got this dysfunctional relationship he's initially introduced as being like a different sort of script to fly mm. but by the time he meets um maggie chung's character he somehow manages to put it together so that he's still a bum but he's got things in hand he's not like he like magically does his apartment up or anything like that he's still the same guy he just seems more efficient to his job and stuff um which is kind of handy seeing as he's Basically, having to like go into gambling dens and <laughs> rescue fly most of the time. So, I didn't. I gotta be honest. I didn't really grasp why she fell in love with him. Uh, it, <laughs> I just because he's, he's a he was a prick, and then he acted a complete prick to her. Then he took her out one day, and then suddenly they're in love. And Chick stick jerks. Well, there was a bit of that, and then there's this really nice <laughs> doctor. Although he's breaking probably some kind of medical um, ethics thing oh, by yeah, you dating, can't date your own patients, by dating his own patient, yeah. Um, you know, this is a person with skills and a future, and isn't related to her. And <laughs> I just, I, I didn't buy her sudden falling for him. I don't know if you did. It just again it's 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 part of that genre isn't it i guess and you just have to accept like like in in the cinematic world girls love people like andy lau's character even though they don't actually seem to deserve any of it (laughs) to be honest with you doesn't deserve it later on because he dumps her like a hot potato to protect or to try and help um uh, wing, uh, fly. So you know, it's it's kind of amusing when you look at who played the doctor, and it's William Chang. 
mm. who's like one of uh, Wonka Wai's like main collaborators along with Christopher mm. Doyle. Um, he's a costume designer and film editor. He's also worked with the likes of Sue Hogg, Johnny Toe, uh, Patrick Tam. Um, and he's also had received an Academy Award for Best Costume Design for... Um, sorry, got a nomination for Best uh, Costume Design for The Grandmaster. Okay, so. right. Um, it's funny you mentioned about Christopher Doyle. So I think the other thing this did, although we saw the sort of proto things that stylistic things that one car Y will grow to like to do. I think it does show you on those films that personally I love fallen angels, Chunkung express um, in the mood for love. I don't like 2046, but again, Christopher Doyle is all over that. His cinematography is all over those movies, which is what I think it's the putting them together makes those films special. Um, I do wonder. Yeah. yeah where, where, where would, Days of Being Wild that um, he starts working with Christopher Doyle for the first mm. time and then it's every film that he does afterwards is where Christopher Doyle is like After the Time, Chungang Express, Fallen Angels as you said um, but uh, yeah he doesn't meet Christopher Doyle until 91 so yeah and, and he and he wouldn't do this is this is his first feature film this is very much in the Hong Kong you know why would he be working with an arty farty cinematographer at this stage it's fair enough so it's I can see proto Wonka Wai in this, but he's ripped off the story from somewhere else, and he's basically rescued by his casting. So, yeah, I don't. I feel like I'm being really hard on it. I think I was just really disappointed, Elwood. I, I I think I was expecting something else. I was expecting something more, something less genre standard um, I think for myself I was disappointed in the fact that there's this great movie that is trying to get out but at the same time is being hampered by this subplot because that's basically what the romance angle is here this subplot that doesn't go anywhere doesn't add anything to it and really only just sort of all it does is to remove the humor the uh... oh god what's the word the um, the erotic tension between <laughs> between <laughs> Fly and Wa because yeah. you know that they that's basically what it is they're just um, an old old married couple these two are there is there is uh, I think I think with these days we'd call it there's a, like, there's kind of destructive bromance isn't there between yes the two? <laughs> there's a real homoerotic tension there between them um, I think that's that's there's so many parts of this movie. Well, you're just like, why the hell are you still hanging out with this guy? He just constantly screws up anything that he's given to do. Even when he's selling the fishbowls, he still uh, <laughs> he still manages to screw that up, that up, even though he has that great scene where he's like um, trying to convince the cop he's not like, he doesn't own the stand and that the shears are just been trimming nose hairs. Yeah, I mean, Jack, Jackie Chung in this film is fucking brilliant. I mean, when you think he's up against Andy Lau, King of Cinema, he's up against Maggie Chung, you know, who's going to go on to be one of the greatest actresses of all time. He's the one who got nominated for the awards. I think his character is charming. I think, remember, he has to spend an entire scene with a Coke can rammed in his mouth, doesn't he? <laughs> he just... oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> And, and and some of that and yeah there is a weird obsession with chuck, chucking guns down people's trousers and threatening to blow their balls yeah, off yeah there is this there is that weird uh, scene where they're being beaten up in the in the alley and he's, 
as you said, he puts the gun down his trousers and it's like, because it's got a real feather trigger on it. Um, and I thought that, I really thought that they were going to kill Fly. Mm. Um, especially when they beat him in the head. Um, but for no, they just, they just give him a beat down and that's, that's the end of that. So the, there's always that, that little bit of melodrama in there, but they never sort of like really commit to it until the end. Mm. Um, and then it just becomes like all the things you hate about, uh, about John Woo. Yeah. Oh, like, and yeah. like the end of the killer. Yeah. There is, there is that, and I think you're you're seeing a DLC. You've seen through me now, Elwood. <laughs> I just meant to say the uh, the Stephen hates fun T-shirt is. Just... <laughs> Actually, uh, I didn't. I didn't think the end. Of, yeah, I just thought the end of this one was a bit rushed. Yeah, and I think I think you're so right. I think if there was, this was just a movie about what and um fly living in the crime world and everything being juxtaposed between each other and there could have been a little romance subplot but the way that the romance subplot is is foregrounded for so much of this movie for a romance that I can't believe in I mean even if you cut out the romance part there's still enough of a movie there to mm. to to make it just about these two low level crooks absolutely um and as i said it would yes it would have been more like mean streets but at the same time i think that it would have only been a stronger movie for it because the crime element parts of the film are the best bits of this film whenever you see, see these two characters they're engaging in in various crime aspects or just when uh flies like trying to set up the wedding reception for for his friend, uh, sight, and he borrows all this money oh. that he can't afford to pay for, and that that the, the <laughs> mother-in-law of uh, this girl that sight's marrying could just sorry the father-in-law he's just like complaining the fact that they're on the roof and that uh, and uh, Fly thinks he's done a good job because he's paid up for shark fin, he's paid for like the emperor's buffet, um, so so he's, he thinks he's putting on a good show for uh, sight, but this father-in-law is wants nothing to do with it at all. I know it's like he's just totally misjudged the mood, hasn't he? He just oh, that was that was I'd forgotten about that. That is kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I think I just think he's just a really interesting character, and and I like I like the two of them together on screen. Obviously, you know they're they're, they're good mates off screen as well, um, and. And, and and also the two storylines never really basically all that happens is Wing gets sorry Fly gets Andy Lau into lots of trouble and gets beaten up for him all the time and he get in a worse and worse condition so he keeps going back to Lantau Island more and more beaten up <laughs> to go and have a snog with with Maggie Chung and they own they only sort of resolve to be a couple five minutes before the end, at which point he runs off to his eventual doom. Spoilers. Um, just never really seemed to go anywhere. And I get it from a... I don't know. I just think um, A Moment of Romance did it better. That kind of, I can't really break out of the crime life, but I still love you. Which, yeah. There we go. I don't yeah. know. I, I feel like we're, I feel like we're dumping on one of the classics of Hong Kong cinema tonight. <laughs> I probably are, but uh, you know, feel free to let us know your own uh, 
thoughts on this one. Tell, for us, sure. tell us why we're wrong to be disappointed. <laughs> yeah, join that queue. <laughs> <laughs> Always someone out there waiting to tell us how wrong we are on something. So, But uh, no, I for myself, it didn't do anything. Uh, now you've mentioned Moment of Romance, I definitely want to watch Romance. I want to go back and rewatch that, and especially Moment of Romance 2. Mm. Um, with, uh, with Anthony Wong there. But, um, <laughs> that was so much fun during Anthony Wong month for watching Moment of Romance 2. Even though there's moments where it feels like you've stumbled into Moment of Romance 1, mm. uh, there's still some really fun moments in Moment of Romance 2. So. And eventually I'll get around to watching Moment of Romance 3. Yeah, and there's, there's, a, there's a ton of movies like this. And, you know, it, again, to me, this is a solid seven out of ten movie there's nothing wrong with it it's not egregiously awful like some of the things we've watched it's just my expectations with that cast and that director even accepting it's his first film i was expecting something relative relative you know something to blow my socks off and actually what it was was yeah it's 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 one of those movies is it (laughs) course <laughs> so i've got nothing else to talk about this me one. either me either i think we've 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 lost the audience they're all going to say we're idiots and everything one car why does is brilliant just wait till they get a load of how much i hate 2046 so <laughs> yeah the, pe- the same people who defend one car why also the same one who did my blueberry nights with nora jones and jude law yeah that was his big uh hollywood movie wasn't it so it it was because chris Doyle's well, in that, uh, uh, is the cinematographer in that as well. So it shows you can't always polish a turd. <laughs> but no, I, and the disappointment does, it comes from the fact I love a couple of his films so so much. Yeah, and it's nice though. Not every director is a hit every time. Well, that brings us into tonight's episode. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you uh, haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe button wherever you happen to be listening to us. Leave us a review. Let us know what you think of the show. Especially on iTunes, uh, it really uh, helps raise the profile of the show on there, especially. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Come say hi to us there. We in Facebook in particular, we've got a really great community of uh, fun, like-minded people that we are. Uh, get to chat about movies and post about various pop culture things that we're over there you can also check out our blog which is asymcinemafilmclub.wordpress.com which not only has our full archive of episodes we have got anthony wong month we've got uh takashi Mike month we've got our chapter by chapter breakdown of banner royale there we also have various writings from like steven and david brooke um so uh, definitely go give that a look as well but next episode, it is my turn to pick. And because we had so much fun on the Church of Tarantino talking about the Street Fighter and the finale of uh, Better Tomorrow 2, um, I'm going to pick a film in a similar nutty vein for our next selection. Uh, as we go back to 1991 for the Hong Kong martial arts splatter film, Ricky O, The Story of Ricky, directed by Lam Nai Choi. I know. I knew that was coming at some point. <laughs> <Did you? laughs> yeah, I, I didn't think it was coming this time, but I did realise when we were talking about the Street Fighter that we hadn't covered it because <laughs> I think there's um, 
I'm trying to. I feel that this year I'm going to try and add a few more nuttier titles into this because we obviously did uh, Ghost and Shell Two, which is a heavy title, um, and we obviously we've done some real arty stuff. So it's time to do some real trashy stuff as well, just to to uh, to balance things out. And Ricky, oh, the story, of Ricky. I don't think you've seen, have you, Stephen? I haven't. We've talked about it. It's it's, <sighs> it's one of my cinema shames. Um, do you know what though? I probably the Stephen that you talk to now is probably going to love it a lot more <laughs> the Stephen who started than, this podcast. Than the Stephen that started this podcast. I have a feeling I have a different tolerance. Is that the right word? Maybe that's not quite the right word. <laughs> standards but... have been lowered since. No, I, I think them. it's. I think it's more an appreciation. I've, I've, it's not just about this podcast, about life in general. I mean, I've always liked a cult movie, but sometimes I just couldn't get into them. But I think we've, um, you know, like some of those Godzilla movies, mate, some of them are excellent. Some of them are like, what the fuck is this? But now I enjoy them all equally. Um, certainly around the sort of kung fu cinema as well, which I just wasn't as well versed in then as I am now. So I get it. This is a camp classic, right? <laughs> very very brutal but highly unrealistic um you're gonna I, see some things that's all yeah. i'm gonna say i'm I, <laughs> I i've seen i've seen sort of highlight bits of it i would I'm, say this is um if you enjoyed the seventh curse i think that you may get a kick out of this one as well yeah which obviously i i did a lot and, um, and that's something i've grown to love I'm also very curious to know if this will be nuttier for you to watch than The Battle Wizard, which is kind of like our benchmark for just what the hell cinema. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see if this manages to beat that for just nuttiness. So. I'm thinking it might, because <laughs> of what I'm aware of. Anyway, I'm really looking forward to that, so that was a good choice. I will. Um, that'll, that'll be something to look forward to this week, watching that. Um so that's obviously on the next episode but until then thank you for listening thank you to my co-host Stephen pleasure as ever and uh, we'll be back next time to talk about Ricky O the story of Ricky Good night. hey 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 This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.